All right, Second Chronicles chapter 6, we have a couple prayers from Solomon. The first is a shorter prayer, and it sounds like he's addressing uh, the people. The longer prayer that we'll start next week, Lord willing, he's going to address God. This is all dedication of the temple. So there's a lot of text of scripture, and I, I believe it may be one of the longest prayers in the Old Testament is about what we're going to jump into next week as uh, as they dedicate the temple. There's a lot there, so I'm not going to go quickly uh, through that because we can learn a lot from other people's prayers in the Bible. And so when it's just narrative of the Kings and Chronicles, we'll go quicker, just capture the story. But whenever there is a prayer like today, we're going to slow down. I'm only going to talk about 11 verses here. So I'm going to summarize Second uh, Chronicles 6, 1 to 11 today with a personal, powerful promises. So three Ps, help you remember it. Personal, powerful promises, and I'll try to justify those three words as we as we go through Second Chronicles 6, 1 through 11. The, the reason I'm going through Chronicles instead of Kings, there's only 10 verses in 1 Kings 8, and there's 11 verses in Second Chronicles 6. I'll tell you one phrase that's not in the other. And so because Second Chronicles has more text, we'll, we'll stick with that and not have to go back and forth. All right, so when someone <laughs> makes a wonderful promise to us, and then keeps that promise. How do we respond? Grateful. Grateful. Okay. What other what other responses with that person? Okay. Trust, good. Happy. All right. I had respect, good. I had one other word. Love. You you love that person because they promised you something. It was a good promise. They kept their promise and we respect them. We love them. We trust them. So our God promises us wonderful things. He promises wonderful things in the Old Testament. We call those covenants uh, to his people in his word. And as the Bible reveals God keeping those promises, his people should respond in trust and love. And I'm going to add one more word. It goes with our theme for the year, obedience. So if God tells us that um, every time we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. So what do we do when we sin based on that promise? We obey God and we confess our sins when we sin. And we can try to consistently obey a God who um, keeps his word. All right, so let's look at 2 Chronicles 6 and see how Solomon is going to respond as God in this time in Israel's history. This is one of the climaxes of the whole Old Testament when we said last time that all the promised land is conquered. All the people are at peace. They're not fighting external enemies. Internally, they are unified, and they have just built this temple that took them seven years, and they're all gathered around to worship the Lord, and they offer so many sacrifices, they can't even count them. That was the end of, of last time, Second Chronicles 5. So verse 1 of chapter 6, then Solomon says, 
said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. This may sound a little mysterious, and actually it is. When in the Old Testament has God displayed himself to his people visibly in thick darkness? Anything come to mind? The Exodus, in particular about the Exodus, in that 40 years, when was God to his people, they observed him as dwelling in thick darkness. Top of Mount Sinai. Jabal al-Laws, if you want to look it up, it is still the top of that mountain is darkened because fire, uh, charcoal, the whole top of the mountain, it's dark, like burnt, dark. Um, and there was, in, if you want to look at Exodus 19, verses 9, I believe it's to 19, you will see twice that God told the people, do not come near this mountain. And as he gave them that warning, even animals, they're going to get killed. Only Moses can come up to the top of the mountain as I give my covenant with you. How the people, when they were all around the mountain and they're observing Moses going up, they're in awe and fear of God. And the Bible says twice in Exodus 19 that God came down in thick darkness. And Moses walks up into that thick darkness and he disappears and they don't see him. And so that's how God wanted to start his relationship with his covenant people, that they know that when God appears, there's thick darkness there. Leviticus, you'll see it again in Leviticus 16.2, that God dwells in thick darkness. I believe it's in the Holy of Holies there. You'll have to I'll look that up. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.11, 5.22. All that's in the first five books uh, of the, the Pentateuch where God dwells in thick darkness. But I'm going to show you uh, Psalm 18. There's Psalm 18 and Psalm 97 that are Psalms. Psalm 18, definitely uh, Solomon knew because David writes it. And let's, and 97 is parallel. We're not told who wrote Psalm 97. So we can't be guaranteed that Solomon knew Psalm 97, but he definitely knows Psalm 18. And we're told about when Psalm 18 is written and the and the introduction to Psalm 18. It is um, written by David, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So David's running for his life. He's running for his life several years. And one of those occasions where he's running from King Saul he writes Psalm 18. If you look, he's crying out to God. He feels like he's going to die in verses 4 and 5. And then verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. So God is angry at David's enemies who are trying to kill him. Verse 8, smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals, flame forth from him. He bowed or bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. 
He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. And it talks about him thundering, um, uttering his voice, and again, hailstones and coals of fire, all the way down uh, to verse 19, where David says, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So God rescues David from the hand of Saul, and this is how David poetically uh, describes the rescue that God provided for him. And a couple times there, he uses the word darkness in verse 9 and 11. You can see Psalm uh, 97, it's a little shorter Psalm, verses 1 to 5 talk about uh, the darkness is uh, the throne of God, and how from earth uh, we could observe God's throne, we would see it is a throne of darkness. Now, this sounds a little contradictory because our God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So how do we, there's a couple contradictory things here in Second Chronicles as Solomon's praying, talking to God that we have to wrestle through, and this is one of them. And so if we could take all of the references to God's darkness, um, and even here, it sounds like Solomon saying in the context here, let's go back to Second Chronicles 6 and verse 1, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. We see that in the Pentateuch. We see that in the Psalms. And then he says, but I have built you an exalted house. So God has revealed himself, but only to a few people. In the thick darkness of the Pentateuch, he didn't allow the people to come near his presence or they'd die. And he didn't allow the people to see when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. As God dwells in darkness in the cloud inside the Holy of Holies, even Aaron and all the high priests aren't able to see the glory of God they likely go in, they offer their sacrifices once a year, and they're, as they're looking at the ground, and they walk out. They cannot look at the glory of God or they're going to die. Okay, so what, what is it about the darkness that God wants his people to understand and that he dwells in darkness? It is that he is likely separate from his people. He is holy and people are not. Why couldn't people come near the mountain? Because they weren't holy. What enabled the priest, the high priest once a year, only if he was consecrated or holy could he go into the most holy place. So God is transcendent. That's a big word that means he's separate from sinners. And that, I think, is what Solomon's trying to capture here in this first reference to God. But he wants to be near God. That's why he builds the temple. All the people around have done all this work to build the temple because they want God with them. However, they know in building the temple, they're never going to have a chance to go into the Holy of Holies. They can't see God. So God is separate from them, but he is at least close to us. And that's the desire, I think, that Solomon's capturing, of which Christ is better. We know in the New Testament, Christ is better. And God is light in the New Testament. In him is no darkness at all. He's separate from sin, though. That's 1 John 1. Christ is the light of the world. Okay, and so 
God reveals himself in the Old Testament separate from sinners, apart from sinners. And Solomon says, I know that you dwell in thick darkness. But I want you to be, but I built you a house, a place for you to dwell in forever. And in that house, likely that as the presence of God comes at the end of chapter five, they're not even able to stand in the in the presence of God because God's glory fills that house and kind of pushes all the priests out. And they're not even able to stand uh, in God's presence because God fills that. So wanting to have God with them forever is a good desire for humanity. We know in the New Testament, Romans 3, that we saw humanity doesn't want God until we're saved. After we're saved, we want to be in God's presence and we want him near us. Before then, we want to be apart from him. And Solomon here, fulfilling what David wanted to build a house for God, a permanent dwelling, so that God would be with them in a particular place and the world could come and worship God. Um, his people want to be with him. Also in verse two, what does Solomon want? He, I, I, I want you to be an exalted. I want you to be with us forever. Okay, so God's people want him, despite their sin, we want, when we're, when we're forgiven, we want to be with God. We want him to be with us and we don't want it to be temporary. We want it to be forever. Okay, so that's what we get in, in verses one and two. The personal, powerful promises, when we understand who God is, we want to be near him. That's what Solomon captures, I think, in verses one and two. Then verse three, transition verse, then the king turned around. So he, he's talking just to the Lord, maybe with the people behind him, it sounds like. And then verse three, the king turns around and blesses all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. So everybody stands kind of like we do for our scripture reading on Sunday mornings. Everybody's standing in respect for God's word, in respect for Solomon's blessing them. Solomon maybe has his back to them. He turns around, maybe re reaches his hands up, something like this, and then he's praying uh, for them. But in praying for them, he's actually, he's talking to the Lord. And so blessing God's people by, well, how's he start? Verse four, he blesses the Lord. Okay, so he's Blessing the people by blessing God and allowing the people to see him and to hear him. And of course, it's recorded for us so we can read it about 3,000 years later. All right, so let's look at verses 4 to 11. This is blessing God's people by, by blessing God. So what is it about God that is highlighted here in Solomon's? This is the shorter prayer. The longer prayer is coming, uh, coming next. He says in verse four, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father. And then he, he says some of the some of the promises. So the reason we chose uh, the theme of personal, powerful promises could be really verse four. You'll see all three of these things in verse four. Blessed be the Lord. Every time we see all caps, Lord, in your Bible, that is the personal name for God, for his people. When you were reading um, Hagar's story in Genesis, and she gives a name to God, all caps, Lord, the God who sees me, Jehovah, the God who sees me, and then Genesis 22, 
when Abraham has the lamb provided for Isaac, the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh. We know that. Whenever Hagar and um, others in the Old Testament give a personal name to God, uh, it's showing their connection to God, their relationship to God. Clearly, uh, Genesis 22, a wonderful story of God is a God who provides. And no one was happier than Isaac and Abraham <laughs> that God provided in Genesis 22, right? So there is a personal, whenever you see all caps, Lord, there are some Bibles that translate it Yahweh. Uh, that is a personal name for God. So God is a personal God. And so when he, when Solomon starts to bless the people, he says, blessed be the Lord. And attaching the Lord to assert as the God of Israel. He is our personal God. He's the God of the whole nation, not just Solomon's God, David's God, the priest God. He is the God of our all of us as his people. And what does he do as a personal God? Who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised. So here is his power. So I can promise you things and i can't fulfill that promise unless i have the power to back it up uh, but god's promises are backed up by his infinite resources and so when god promises eternal life he's got to be an eternal god to promise eternal life and he is and so we take that promise of eternal life and say we can take that to the bank because the god who promised me eternal life is the eternal god the everlasting god and I think you saw that uh, in in our reading in Genesis that Abraham called God the everlasting God. All right. So God is the one who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth. And then these promises are specific to David, my father. So there's a relationship that Solomon has to David and then David has with God. And Solomon now that David's gone is claiming these promises connecting the promises with the mighty hand of God, with the personal Lord, who is the God of Israel. So we bless God because of his personal, powerful position. And then verse five, five to nine, since the day that I brought my people, now here he's talking as if God's talking to the people. So this is a little complicated, but you understand Solomon's not the one who is the I in verse five, it's God. So he's talking to God in a way that this is what God said to David. And so he is praying really God's word back to him. Okay, God, you said, I will be with you always. So this is how we would pray to God. So God, I expect you to be with me because you said I will be with you always. So that's kind of how Solomon's praying here. In verse five, he says, since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people, Israel. I'm going to stop there. This is the verse that's not in first Kings. And this verse sounds contradictory. I read this verse and verse six over and over and over. I'm like, these are contradictory verses. <laughs> God says, I chose no city in which to dwell in. And I chose no prince or leader over my people. And then look at verse six. Uh, verse six, I'm trying to find it here. And then I chose, so trying to find the beginning of verse six, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. 
and I've chosen David to be over my people Israel. So this sounds contradictory. God says, I, I chose no city, I chose no prince. And then he goes right on to say, but I chose Jerusalem and I chose David. You're like, okay, what does that mean? All right, so we bless God because of his personal powerful promises. So it seems to contradict. I didn't choose a prince or a place for my house. But then I chose Jerusalem and I chose David. How, how do we reconcile this con apparent contradiction? It's not a contradiction. For us, first reading, it sounds contradictory. So what do we do with it? Whose desire was it to build a temple? God's or man's? From what we have seen and what has been displayed for us in Kings and Chronicles, it wasn't God's idea to build the temple. It never was. It was God's idea to build the tabernacle. Yes. And God's spirit was inside the builders of the tabernacle so that what came out of their hands and crafting it was exactly a shadow in Hebrews of what the New Testament, the real holy of holies in the holy place. Okay. So it wasn't God's idea to build the temple. And then was it God's idea to have a king? Clearly it wasn't. So God's what God's saying in verse 5 was, it wasn't my idea to have a specific place to have a temple. I'm, 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 he was fine with the tabernacle. And it wasn't my idea to have an earthly king. <clears throat> so and But when Israel wanted a king, they chose King Saul. And God, God said, not my choice <laughs> of a king. If you're going to have a king, I will show you the kind of king that you need to have and it's a man after my own heart and it doesn't have anything to do with his lineage it doesn't have anything to do with his popularity it doesn't even have to do with where he's at in his family because he chooses the youngest david because that's the man after god's own heart okay god says if you want a king okay that's your choice but you need to you need to look at this guy okay and then of David's sons, he did, Solomon's nowhere close to the oldest, but he is the most godly, we're going to assume. So God is not, Solomon is not contradicting what God says. So to, to put these ideas together, God didn't choose to have a king over his people. Israel chose. And once Israel chose, God is going to direct their choices towards someone who will honor him. God also, his desire wasn't to have a temple. It was David's desire to have a temple. And then Solomon fulfilled that desire. And then, so God says, okay, if you're going to have a temple, because David desired it, he saved all this money up for it. Solomon's got all these resources now. Solomon fulfills what David wanted. God says, okay, if you're going to have a temple, it's got to be here. So God, God didn't have a, the, the, this is how to, how to say this reverently. God knew everything, right? But it wasn't his choice to have the temple. It was man's choice. The temple's destroyed. Obviously, it wasn't a permanent forever thing because he allows the temple to be destroyed. It's probably all the gold and it's wiped out, uh, melted, stolen uh, in 586 when the Babylonians come. Um, Herod's temple in AD 70, uh, bigger than Solomon's, is again destroyed. Uh, and they don't have a temple right now. 
So it's obviously not God's will for his people in Israel to have a temple in Jerusalem. They have a temple mount that has the Dome of the Rock on it, uh, not a temple where they're offering sacrifices. So God is simply directing the nation to the right king, David, to rule. So he does say, I chose Jerusalem and I chose David. But he is allowing Israel, um, it wasn't God's initial plan to have a king or a permanent temple. That was um, that was man's choice. So that's how we would put these two contradictory, apparent contradictory things together and say God directs um, his people after they have desire. And it's not a wrong desire for them. It was wrong for them to desire a king. It wasn't wrong for David as a king to desire to have a temple. If God, if it was wrong, God would have said, no, that's wrong. <laughs> We're not going to have a temple. But he allowed them to have a temple. But it was David's uh, idea to honor the Lord, uh, to build a house for his name. All right, verse 7. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house. So Solomon clarifies what we, this apparent contradiction with. It was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did it. Yeah, you did well that it was in your heart. It's not wrong that it's in your heart, David. Uh, this is God and David's conversation. David has mentioned this before, but now this next generation who has finished the temple they're getting the backstory of the temple. Verse 9, nevertheless, it is not you who shall build this house. This is God talking to David. Solomon's saying this in his prayer. But your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. And so clearly the temple is for God's name. All right, and that's uh, verses uh, 5 to 9 is we bless God because of his personal, powerful promises. God allows us to do things that um, to honor him and then directs us uh, to who and how he is going to be honored. And that's clearly God's in control of this. Um, and he directs David, then he directs Solomon and Solomon is just saying, I carried out what I did. And that, that's what verse 10 is. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. Okay. David, the promise to David, that his son would build a house for our name uh, the Lord fulfilled his promise that he made to David. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. He's our personal God, and he had made this powerful promise. And Solomon says, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is our Lord. He is our God. We are going to serve him. The reason we have the temple is so that we can serve him, uh, planning forever. Okay, so we bless God because he keeps his personal, powerful promises. And then, um, and since God fulfilled his promise to his king, uh, his king, David, and then Solomon, continuing in his obedient footsteps, uh, they carried out uh, this uh, honor of God's name. And then verse 11, and there I have set the ark, the ark of the covenant, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people Israel. So since the king honored God's name by building him a house, the nation now has a reminder. What is this reminder? In the very center of the temple that is to magnify God's name is a very specific piece of furniture, 
And inside that piece of furniture is a visible representation of something, the covenant, the Ten Commandments that God made with his people. And it says here, he, it is the covenant of the Lord. He's our personal God. He gave us this covenant. And this um, visible representation that that we have now in our temple is, is reminding us that God made this covenant with the people of Israel. No other nation on the earth has anything like this. There's only one Ark of the Covenant. There's only one Ten Commandments that are inside that Ark and only to the people of Israel. So, and this is all in fulfillment of, in, in a way to help the earth to worship the one true and living God. So God allows the kings to, allows Israel to have a king and then directs them to the right king. He allows David to have a desire and then directs David's desire to his son to build this so that God's name is honored. So what do we conclude with this? Well, we're not supposed to go look for the Ark of the Covenant. I wouldn't conclude that <laughs> uh, and try to find it. And uh, that would be pointless. We don't, we don't need the Ark of the Covenant anymore. We have full uh, scripture. But what personal, powerful promises had, has God made with us in the New Testament? God made very specific promises to David and Solomon, and their building of the temple and all that work that went into it was obedience to God's promises and trusting him. And when God came and dwelt among them visibly, he, we can say he was pleased, that that was an appropriate response to the people to worship God. So what personal, powerful promises has God made with us in the New Testament? We're not Israel. We're not going to Jerusalem to worship. Well, we have, I mentioned, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? We have the promise of, we already said this earlier, eternal life. We have the promise of Jesus is coming again. There's a, some fascinating promises that require a the perfectly powerful God that has to back those promises up. How about a place for us in heaven? I go to prepare a place for you in heaven. Is that a powerful promise? Only a God who lives in heaven can prepare that place. But behind that promise is tremendous hope. How about the Holy Spirit? Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I've got to go to the Father. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to live inside of all of you. Whoa! Everybody in the Old Testament would have loved to have that promise. Yeah. And they talked about it in Acts 2. And the Jewish people were like, how do we get the Holy Spirit? Okay? So these, and, and there are others, other promises in the New Testament. So when we think of God's personal, powerful promises, that's not just to Israel and Solomon in the Old Testament. We have it better in the New Testament because we have the Holy Spirit, because we have Jesus having come first and is going to come again. We have the empty tomb. We have a place in heaven. We have confession of sin, all these things that we can enjoy. So what obedience does God expect from us because he gave us those promises? 
There are specific things that if you read about those promises, for instance, everyone who has this hope of Christ's return in him purifies himself as God is pure. That's 1 John 3. That's one example of because we have a promise, this is how we live. And holiness, purity. How about humility? If we confess our sins, that requires us to be humble and actually confess our sins. How about hope? Christ is coming again, so we live in hope of his return. We trust, we have faith in him. If the Holy Spirit is in us, what do we expect to see in us? We expect to see the fruit of the Spirit, which requires us to walk in the Spirit. So you can see a lot of connections of God's promises attached to his personal nature, and we call him Father. And we call Christ friend, master, savior. And the Holy Spirit is our helper. And as he produces in us the fruit of the Spirit, all of that points us back to our God who is personal and powerful and gives us wonderful promises. 